Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 festival. Welcome, friends. And if you can't read, I'm Kerry O'Brien and he's Stan Grant. <laughs> and I'm here to talk with him. But I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land we're on tonight, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, who never ceded and have never, and I imagine never will, cede sovereignty over their country. Stan has built an illustrious career as a distinguished Australian and international broadcaster, author and public commentator, mostly for the ABC, but also SBS in Australia and CNN in Asia and the Middle East, which I've witnessed close up and from a distance for more than 30 years. His latest book, With the Falling of the Dusk, a Chronicle of the World in Crisis, covers his CNN days in China and the Middle East, but with some candid and compelling personal reflections woven through it. Stan is also a proud Wiradjuri and Camilleroy man. Before we come to the book, Stan. Mm. Can, can I just say, Kerry showed me his copy of the book and there were all these notes in the back of it. And suddenly I knew how John Howard felt. <laughs> to sit down with Kerry O'Brien with notes is a very worrying place to be. There's no comparison. <laughs> I just had a little flash there where I'm thinking that, gee, if Stan Grant had only been the person determining WIC policy, <laughs> how different that might have been. You'd have had to learn how to be divisive. Mm. But I won't go there anymore. Before we come to the book, I want to get uh, your take first on the current run of headlines on China, particularly that strange and dramatic headline that emerged from one of Canberra's most powerful public servants, uh, Mike Pizzullo, who is responsible for this country's internal security with his minister, warning that the drums of war are beating. And when I walked into my local news agency and saw the Australian's headline, warning of the drums of war, I thought, Christ, what has happened? And nothing had happened except that a senior public servant had had put something out for his staff and somehow it made its way into the Australian. I couldn't believe it. No country's name, but we all knew that he was talking about China. The diplomatic uh, conflict between Australia and China has become more and more heated in the past couple of years, but uh, particularly the last 12 months. But a huge jump mm. from that to the drums of war. Mm. And particularly led by Australia. Um, not even the United States is getting this far out when it comes to talk of, of open conflict. We just heard Joe Biden this last week give his 100-day speech to, uh, to Congress, and he talked about competition with China. He talked about defending interests and values, maintaining a presence, a military presence in the Indo-Pacific. He said specifically to stop war rather than to start a war. So the language is very different. Um, it's been very interesting, Kerry, for me because I've essentially been writing about, thinking about, living in and reporting on China since the handover of Hong Kong in 1997. And there are, two, there are two things to look at here. One, there is no doubt under Xi Jinping we are seeing a much more assertive, aggressive China, a much more authoritarian China. He's talking about 
reunifying Taiwan with the mainland by force if necessary. He's building his military presence. He has claimed and militarized the bases in the South China Sea. And Chinese and Indian troops came to blows, albeit with rocks and, uh, and sticks, but actually left s several soldiers on both sides dead on their disputed border last year. The area is a tinderbox, and when we know that when you get a big emerging power in the world, it leads to a shift in the global balance of power and that makes everyone uneasy. There is a difference, though, between preparing for what could possibly happen and trying to talk something into happening. And the change in rhetoric and the way that is received in China puts us into an entirely different posture, a posture where we're no longer just talking about preparing for these things, trying to do the diplomacy, but actually starting to talk about war. When you're talking about war openly, you know that something else is failing. And what's failing in this case is diplomacy, which is a word we don't hear much at all anymore when it comes to China. I mean, you've reported international affairs for a very long time, and at one level, trying to make a story out of um, things that diplomats say is a hell of a struggle. Mm. But on the other hand, that's the very point of diplomacy. Uh, on the other hand, without diplomacy, you probably have four or five or six or eight or ten times the bloody wars that we have had. Yeah. The best diplomacy is when you never see it or hear about mm. it. And diplomacy is tested um, when you have moments just such as these. It was diplomacy that helped to open up China to lead to the point where China would be our biggest trading partner and would be now the biggest engine of economic growth in the world and on track to become the biggest economy in the world. When Gough Whitlam went there, people talk about Nixon going to China, which was absolutely significant. But Whitlam got there before Nixon, when he was still opposition leader, um, before he'd won the election in 72. Uh, Whitlam goes to China, Nixon and Kissinger go to China, at this time to sit down with Mao Zedong, um, someone who had been an avowed enemy of the United States. The relationship was in a deep freeze. US and Chinese troops had clashed in the Korean War. But Nixon takes a punt, goes there and sits down with, with Mao and with Kissinger and Zhou Enlai was able to, to deliver a rapprochement that helped to bring China back into the fold and create the trajectory that we're on now. But we're not seeing that. Uh, and increasingly, and, and it does work on both sides. We know that in China, there is, it's also a tit for tat. We know that they've also been refusing to take phone calls, taking you know, punitive measures against uh, our, our trade exports. But that's where we're at now. We're into this tit for tat, continual escalation of this tension with no strategy and no way out. And, and we're dealing with a situation that the, that the world has grappled with for decades. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Uh, since Chiang Kai-shek retreated to Formosa and it became yeah. Taiwan. Yeah. The, the, most of the world has embraced, or accepted at least, a one-China policy mm -hmm. in which Taiwan doesn't exist as a nation, as a sovereign nation, and Australia does not recognise Taiwan as a sovereign nation. Uh, and, it, and, it's this, and, and there has been this understanding and kind of grudging acceptance that one day the one-China policy will come into force. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, there, it, there seems no point to me why Australia would be t posturing the way it is right now. We, we've managed uh, 
a, a successful status quo for a long time. Um, China's rise has been entirely legitimate. It has, it has been through the instruments of the international global order. They are a member of the World Trade Organization. They're a member of the World Health Organization. They're a permanent five member of the UN Security Council. They participate in UN peacekeeping operations. They're a signatory to international covenants and treaties such as the Paris Climate Accords. So it, its rise has been incorporated into a global order. It has happened without us having to fire a shot. Um, and thus far, that's pretty unique in human history that you will see a rise of a power like this without that direct confrontation. It wasn't that long ago that we were welcoming Xi Jinping to speak to a joint sitting of parliament and signing a, 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 a free trade agreement with someone who was right then locking up his rivals, cracking down on dissent, um, persecuting Tibetans, persecuting Uyghurs, all of those things and all of those things that we should find reprehensible. But we were managing to have a trade relationship keep the diplomatic channels open, try to work constructively on questions of human rights and also work constructively on the things that benefit both of us. But since 2017, Kerry, there's been a real shift. Um, under Donald Trump, there was a strategic shift. China was declared a strategic competitor. Um, it was listed as the biggest single threat to American security. We saw the, the, the trade war, which the US came off second best in. We've seen an escalation of tensions, an increasingly authoritarian turn by Xi Jinping, and Australia dragged into that, but no longer being dragged along with the United States, but getting in front of it um, and being increasingly assertive. And we know where that gets us. I and mean, when you can't pick up the phone and talk to your counterpart, uh, in government, in your, the country that is your biggest trading partner, something is wrong. On both sides, but something is wrong. Yeah, but the part that I can't quite understand is that it, it might have made sense uh, to Scott Morrison and Malcolm Turnbull when Donald Trump was president, uh, that they might curry favour with, and I'm, I'm putting aside whether there was any merit domestically in doing what they did on Huawei, uh, but it pleased Trump what Australia did with Huawei. It pleased Trump uh, when Australia suddenly spoke up demanding a, an independent inquiry on the pandemic. But why would Joe Biden uh, be impressed by any senior member of the Australian government talking about the drums of war over time? Yeah, I, I think this is really interesting, Kerry, because Biden, of course, during the election campaign, um, spoke very forcefully about China. He called Xi Jinping a thug. He said that China has perfected the art of the steel. Um, he is in no doubt that China is a uh, not just a competitor, but potentially also um, a threat to those interests, particularly in, in the Indo-Pacific. But there are also signs that they are beginning to try to find ways to talk to one another. There was the Alaskan summit between uh, America's senior diplomats and, and China's senior diplomats. Very forceful, very blunt. But when they retired behind doors, I suspect they got down to some real work. John Kerry, who is the climate um, czar in the Biden administration, went to China. China, as we know, um, is committed to zero net emissions by 2050, 2060. Um, whether it gets there is another question, but the two big powers are essential if we're going to do something on climate. And there are areas there that you may see elements of cooperation that could lead to some rapprochement. The risk for Australia without an overall strategy, a coherent strategy, is that we find ourselves on the outer or wrong-footed when it comes to that. Um, 
that's where we're at right now. We haven't taken the temperature yet fully of how Biden is going to deal with China. So as a skeptic rather than a cynic, I'm left asking myself the question, if it doesn't make sense that we're doing this uh, for international relations reason and continuing once again to strengthen our ties and endeavour to ingratiate ourselves with the United States, then why are we doing it? Uh, so the only other question for me is whether this is for domestic consumption as the government's popularity wanes somewhat at home with an election not too far away. National security elections based on national insecurity are not unknown in this country. Mm, mm. Yeah, and, and, you know, certainly when you look at what it pushes off the headlines, um, it certainly achieves that aim. And, and, and I, I think, I, you know, I think in the book as well, I don't pull any punches about um, the authoritarian nature of Xi Jinping. We still don't know, ultimately, how far he is prepared to go, and we mm. need to prepare for that contingency. Um, we know that the rejuvenation of China, the return of China to, to the apex of global power is part of what he sees as his China dream. We've seen what he's done with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. We've seen what he's done in Hong Kong. We've seen the threats potentially of using force in Taiwan as well. Um, I haven't got a measure yet on just whether he is prepared to go all out, if he is prepared to invade. And at that point, we are in a very different world, a very changed world. And the risks is are high going, for is him. He, is he seriously going to go close to doing that if he knows that there is a significant risk that it will bring China into war with the United States? And maybe he thinks that war is inevitable. But why would he want to pull one on in the next five or 10 or 15 years, even if he was he, he, stupid enough to want it? He does have his own issues to deal with at home. Part of his role um, and a significant part of the role of being the leader of China is that you're also the chairman of the military commission. And there are those within the People's Liberation Army who are very hawkish and he has to appease those as well. So he has his own, he has his own constituency to appease inside his own country. But you can play with them you without, can, without at right, any stage without, intending to take it with, with, without all the way. war. And, and here's the thing about conflict in Taiwan. It would not be easy they have a, an advanced, technologically advanced military. Um, they have the capacity to intercept a lot of missiles from China. Um, and then, there, of course, there is the prospect of the United States mm. intervening, or at the very least, and they would do this at the very least, and that is make sure that Taiwan has the military capacity to defend itself. And the risk of a military adventure that goes wrong for Xi Jinping would be the end of his presidency. Yeah. The other thing to think about Kerry is this, he's very popular amongst the ordinary Chinese people, that is true, um, but there are tensions within the elite, tensions within the Communist Party leadership, people who are very concerned when he declared himself president for life, and it would not be beyond the realm of possibility that he could be removed from inside as well. So he's, he has several um, balls in the air as well. Being the president of China doesn't mean that you just rule everybody yeah. with an iron fist. He has to play politics as well. But it, it is a zero-sum game to go to war. We have to prepare for it without talking ourselves into it and use the diplomacy to avoid it. Now, I'm going to come back to China and, and the global picture shortly, but... But in your book, as I said, you weave the personal through with the professional. And I want to come to the personal now for a little while. You start your book, I must say, I, I, you got me right at the start. That was a wonderful descriptive moment, I thought, right at the in the prologue. Mm. You're on the train. Mm, to China. With yeah. your family. 
uh, going into China to take up your CNN posting in Beijing. You worked with the sunrise and reflected as your family slept on and allowed your mind to take you through what you called the quiet ritual of belonging mm. when you come to a new place. Can you take us through that ritual? Wherever I've been in the world, and this comes from being an Indigenous person, I like the country to open up to me. I like to feel the earth beneath my feet. I like to feel the place welcoming me, um, wherever I've been. And that can be as simple as going for a walk, sitting in a park, um, taking the time to feel the place around you. When we moved from Hong Kong to Beijing, I said to um, my wife Tracy and the boys, I don't want to fly, I want to get the train. It was Christmas Eve and there was an overnight train, 14, 15 hours, and I wanted, I wanted us to feel this country. And so I got the train and we took that journey and we woke up on a Christmas morning, everyone was asleep, and I looked out the window and wiped the condensation from the glass and here was this hard, hard land, Kerry, packed with frost, trees stripped of leaves, there was an old Buddhist pagoda in the distance and a lone man ploughing his field with a horse-drawn plough. And in that moment, I really felt that the two of us were somehow twinned with history and fate. I'm an Indigenous man going out into the world. I am in the West, but I'm not of the West. Indeed, my family has suffered at the hands of the West. And yet I'm a product of the West going to a country that is emerging as a real challenge to the idea of Western universal hegemony. And looking at this man who would have seen famine, war, revolution, who'd probably have lived his life entirely in the little village of his, of his ancestors, but was seeing the world coming to him. And it was that moment, I think, when I framed the book around that fault line of history. For that man and for me, and for other people in other countries, we, we carry our history in our bones, whereas in the West, history is always something to be left behind. And that moment captured well, that for me. <laughs> I'm of the West. I would never let history be, but, go behind. No, but... but and, and, uh, and I've never understood... But you're when, Irish. When periodically, well, that's true. <laughs> Irish. <laughs> we'll no, come no, to that no, too. No, 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 but, but actually, Kerry, no, there, there is a difference to this. The Irish have it as well, that sense that your history lives in you. When I say the West leaves history behind, the West is predicated, the post-enlightenment liberal West is predicated on tomorrow. Nations are new inventions. Perhaps seen, that's why we get into so much fucking yes, trouble. Yes, well, we've seen, we've seen nations rise and fall in our lifetime. Go back to a, a map of Europe of 100 or 150 years ago and look at the countries that have disappeared. Look at country, uh, the borders that have shifted in our own time, countries that have come into being. But the idea in the West too is that you wear that history lightly and it can be a virtue to leave those things behind. But when it sits in the core of your being, when it becomes existential, when it becomes central to your identity, if you are Irish, if you are um, Muslim, mm. if you are North Korean, if you are Chinese, if you are Russian, if you are Aboriginal, that is a very different conception of history to a Western linear progress that is always about the new thing or tomorrow, moving forward and progress. Well, you... You arrived in China with your own deep-rooted understanding of what colonialism 
can inflict on those it subjugates. And you saw the parallels with China too. You talk of the world's ignorance of Chinese history, mm. from mighty kingdom to rape and pillage, from foreigners to colonial humiliation. And you talk of how young uh, Deng Xiaoping mm. saw white people treating the Chinese as slaves in their own country. Yeah, that, that's a really pivotal story for me in the book. And that is that, you know, when Deng Xiaoping, a lot of the early Chinese revolutionaries went to France to study. And uh, he left his village to take the train to Paris. He, um, he first arrived in Shanghai and he looked out and he saw Chinese people fetching and carrying for Europeans. He gets to Hong Kong and he sees Chinese people carrying Europeans in rickshaws. He sees signs saying no Chinese allowed. He gets to Europe and he sees how Chinese workers are treated and the venom that they're, you know, that they're, with which they're addressed and the mockery and the scorn. He comes, as they were here. As they were here, the yellow peril as it was known. And then of course he comes back to, to China and he joins the revolution and he becomes part of something that I think I try to identify in the book and I think we miss fundamentally about China. And that is how the Chinese have had to remake themselves. This is a country that believed it was the centre of the universe. Zhongguo, the name of China, means the middle kingdom. The emperor was the sun king. And then with the fall of the Qing Empire after the Opium Wars with Britain, China is usurped, it's humiliated. And it went through a period of revolution and war and upheaval that is pretty much unparalleled in human history. Of the five greatest conflicts in human history, if you take out World Wars I and II, the other three happened in China between the fall of the Qing and the 1949 Communist Revolution. Tens of millions of people slaughtered. Mm. Um, and, and out of that emerges this new China with a strong sense of regaining their place in the world and a deep sense of humiliation. And Deng Xiaoping connects us to that. Mao Zedong arises out of that. And Xi Jinping sees himself as the fulfilment of that, the third part of that revolution. Right. And of course, uh, racism goes hand in hand with colonialism, as it did there, as it has here. You've obviously given a lot of thought to racism and what drives it. I've had no we, choice. We understand why a colonial power would demonise or seek to discredit the people whose country it has seized. And having researched my own Irish roots, uh, I've come to vividly understand the evil that was perpetuated by the English on the Irish for centuries, of which the famine was the most devastating manifestation. But it was horrifying for me to have to acknowledge when I went back through my own family history that some of the refugees from that racism in Ireland came to Australia and became willing parties to the evil that was inflicted on the Indigenous people here who were so convenient. Including in, including in my family, the same story. I am sitting here tonight with the name Grant of an Irish Catholic convict a man who was involved in the rebellion against the British, a united Irishman. He, his brother, his sister, his mother were all executed for their role in the rebellions of the 1790s. He was sent to Australia at the age of 17, not for seven years or 14 years, for life, never to darken Ireland's door again. Through a series of sort of fortunate incidents, he ends up crossing the Blue Mountains after the war with the Wiradjuri people, my own people, he's given grants of land. By the time he dies, 
He is the richest Irish Catholic in the colonies. He has a, a white family, two wives, one who passed away earlier, and he had a black family with my great-great-grandmother, Gurwin. The black kids had the same names as his white kids. A black Hugh, a white Hugh, a black Patrick, a white Patrick, a white Mary, a black Mary, who all went to work for their white siblings. He built his own plantation. The man who was sent here in chains for fighting the British became part of the aristocracy and lorded it over the black people who, his own family, and I sit here tonight with his, his name. And that's a struggle in me. And it's a struggle that sits at the heart of this country. And I have to wrestle with the fact of that without disavowing it either. Mm. Because it is not just my history, it's my blood. Okay, so, so the island that he left and the island that my ancestors left was an island where the Irish were painted by the English as Neanderthal. Mm. But many of them came here and were racist and saw Indigenous Australians as inferior. So crystallise your thinking for me on what makes a racist, mm. on what the seeds of racism are. It emerges in a political and economic form out of the Enlightenment. You can't separate those ideas. The ideas of a universal Christendom married to a political liberalism was always tied to a racial hierarchy. And it was decreed that you could usurp, take, steal the land of the, that were not governed by a Christian monarch. Take the lands of people who did not till the soil. John Locke, one of the great Enlightenment thinkers, gave us that idea of private property, that the land that was not being worked was yours to take. And as a result of that, you get a political and economic manifestation of that hierarchy based on a presumption of a superiority of whiteness and, and a subjectivity of blackness or various other colours in between. And, and that becomes embedded in a political structure and an economic structure and an idea of how civilization and society is ordered. It is built into the fabric of political liberalism. And we only need to look around the world to see how it still struggles with that. Black Lives Matter. You know, the killings of black people on the streets of America by police. The failure to deliver reparations to African-Americans for the sins of slavery. The failure in Australia to deliver a meaningful treaty. The failure in Australia to deliver the outcomes in our lives that other Australians take for granted that a migrant can come here and within a couple of generations or even one generation be enjoying all the fruits of this country while the people whose land was stolen are dying 10 years younger. It is embedded, Kerry. It is part and parcel of what we see as a universal idea of liberalism allied to capitalism and democracy that is attached to a fundamental whiteness. And we're struggling to prize those things apart now. Except, Stan, that you'll see racism uh, where there might not be a single white skin in sight. No, you see it in China. You'll, you'll see it in China, you'll yep. see it in Japan, you'll see it in every country of the world, you'll see it within countries, you'll see it, you'll see it within clans, you'll see, I mean, I'm told that in America, that those with a lighter skin, hmm can look down on those with darker skin. Well, we see it amongst so where did, What is it? What is it about people that they, that they try to feel better about themselves or, or, or 
struggle to place themselves in a superior position by making somebody else inferior. I, I think there is something innate, and, and that comes from our desire to feel secure and to conquer. You know, whenever we emerge from the savannah of Africa and started moving across the, across the rest of the world, when you move from a cave to a pasture over the hill and you encounter other peoples, what do you do? How do you meet those people? The fear that comes with that, um, the capacity to embed that with tyranny and violence. I think though that part of that is innate, but when it becomes structural, it becomes something different. There's fear there too, isn't there? Is, there, there is fear. fear. There and is the fear. People the people who are driving the racism, way more often than not, for whatever political motive or other motive, are using the ignorance and the fear of others mm. to drive that racism, aren't they? Yeah, and it's, and it's so easy to prey upon that, um, but particularly when these things become politicised, when they become structural. And you're right to point out that in place Japan and China and other places, because it's also, racism is also very much allied to capital exploitation as well. The capacity to find a workforce that is cheap, you bring immigrants from other parts of the world and you put them to work for you for cheaper wages and those people don't look like you and come from other places and you call that opportunity. Mm. Um, but in fact, it becomes embedded in the political system. So it's fear, it is something that is innate, it is suspicion of others, and it becomes politicised, it becomes part of a, a political structure. Um, it also raises something else that I really struggled with in the book, and I've struggled with as I've travelled around the world and tried to, to ask questions about the human condition, and that is, do we really seek freedom, or are we more likely to acquiesce to tyranny? Do we trade our freedom for security? And I think far too often you see examples of where we do exactly that. Mm. Um, and Nazi Germany, of course, being one of the great examples where a functioning, civilised democracy was hijacked at the ballot box by the Nazis and a, and a, and a nation co-opted into that and bending to that fear and tyranny. Um, and, and you see this around the world. You see this so often that we're prepared to acquiesce to the worst of humanity if it means that they're not coming for us. Yes, well, we can go on about that one for a long time too. Um, I want to come back to the personal still, and there's, there's a quote from you which, which is along the same theme. I was never just telling the story of China. I was looking for part of myself. Yeah. What were you saying? My struggle, I suppose, the questions I've been asking myself since I was a boy is what, what put me here? What is it that defines me? You know, I'm born into an Aboriginal family, living on the margins of society. We were poor. It wasn't just, you know, poor, um, will we get by this week? It was poor, where will we live this week? We moved from town to town wherever dad could find work. We slept in the backs of cars. We slept in tents. We slept in, lived in caravans and sawmill shacks. I didn't have a proper education. Um, we'd get up and pack up and move and I would change schools. I changed schools 13, 14 times before I was even into high school. I didn't have that security. And I, look, I remember when I was a boy, Kerry, looking out the window as we drove along the road and wondering about what put us here. I knew that race was part of it. I knew how we were seen. I knew we were a black family. I knew that I was living in a place that was fundamentally white and that the privileges that came with that whiteness put us somewhere below that. And so going out into the world, I suppose I was looking for that bit of myself 
in the lives of other people, to try to explain this. When I looked into the eyes of a Chinese peasant farmer, when I looked into the eyes of an Afghan refugee, when I met a, a Palestinian man in Iraq who came out of his room and put a jar in my hand with the soil that he'd taken from his home that he had to flee in Palestine, and that was all he had left of his home, I knew what that felt like. And I was looking for those things, those connections, to try to explain what put me in this place. You know, there's this great line that Frantz Fanon, the, the, um, the, the black philosopher and writer um, and psychiatrist, once said, Oh, my body, it makes me a man who asks questions. And that's how I feel about those things. You describe a man you filmed in Shanxi province mm. in northwest China, fruitlessly trying to dig a well in rock-hard soil in drought. And you write, when I looked into the eyes of that man digging in vain, I knew him. I had seen that look in my father and grandfather. His wife standing beside him was my mother. I shared with them the journey from the past to the future. It's a story those born truly to the West don't truly understand. So let's break that down. Is this what you're talking about? The, the, this, this was the connection between the Chinese farmer and your parents and grandfather? Yeah. We are not of the West. And when you think about modernity as being a Western construction, and a phenomenal thing when you think about it, the, the ideas that flowered in the 17th and 18th century, that explosion of ideas that gave us conflict, but gave us hope, gave us democracy, gave us colonisation, empire, violence, all of those things. We are sitting here today as a product of that. That is the creation of a modern world that came at other people's expense. It came at the expense of my own people. And yet I find myself, and I describe in the book, the West for me is tyrant and temptress. There are things about it that I find, you know, when I read the great Western philosophers that fire my own soul, those ideas of freedom, even if that freedom is just out of reach, even if that freedom was not designed for me, there is something in that for me to hold on to. And yet I know that when I stand there with that man and I see my own family, I know that we share something, that he, he shares something with me, that when China was subjugated, invaded, brutalised, its land taken, Japanese occupation, French occupation, the opium wars with the British, the hundred years of humiliation, and this phrase that I heard over and over and over in China, to eat bitterness, to eat bitterness, to endure, to suck that up, to stick a shovel into a parched hard ground for just a drop of water. And that drop of water is enough enough to keep you and hold you for another day. That's what put me here. That's my family. That was that man. So when I, when I read, and when you referred to, you talked about looking into the eyes of the refugees and so on, when I read that, um, it struck me as ineffably sad. Yeah, it is sad. That you would have all of these moments and to talk like that about this moment and that moment and that moment suggests to me that you've had many such moments. There's a word and this is probably one of the only words, I don't think there's a word in English that captures the existential sadness that I think you feel in your bones when you are a product of that history, when you feel that loss ineffably. Go and sit in our country, out of the city, at night, by a river, by yourself, and just feel it. There is a deep sadness, there is a moan 
in that country. Just think, Kerry, tens of thousands of years, the trees and the animals, the living things of this land heard a language, heard a people, gone. Within a generation, a language is silenced. You feel that sadness. And there is a word in the, in the Korean language. Again, I found this when I went to Korea. That, that deep, deep pain and sadness that comes from a cold, long, cold winter. And it is Han, not to be confused with the Han ethnicity. Han. And the Han word in Korean means a sadness beyond grief. Beyond I'm, I'm imagining, Stan, that, that sadness can destroy you. Or, or I don't know how you harness sadness, but you can accept and almost embrace that sadness as a part of your life because it is a part so fundamentally of your story and the story of your people. Um, but, but I wonder, I know family is incredibly important to you, mm. Mm. but does this sadness that you talk about does this sit like a pall over you? Does it get in the way of you enjoying the good things in your life? There's many beautiful things in my life and my, my wife and my family and my parents and um, don't start me with my parents, Kerry. I'll just lose it completely. But it's... Um... The, 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 the struggle of my mum and dad in the face of that sadness and the incredible tenderness that they hold themselves against the world with. I remember when I was a kid, I'd sit in the back of the car on those long nights, driving from town to town, not knowing where we were going to go, not knowing where we were going to sleep. And my mum and dad had this little ritual. Mum was never a smoker, but dad would drive, mum would light up a smoke. And she'd take a drawer of it and she'd pass it over to him. It was just so incredibly tender. There were times I'd see my, my dad could come home, he worked in sawmills, and it would break his body to work in sawmills. He lost the tips of three of his fingers, his broken bones. He would just come home and drop himself into a bath that would turn black from sap and blood with nothing else to show for it but a meagre meal on the table. And sometimes I'd see that. He'd be just sitting there and I'd feel the weight of that sadness. He carried a deep sadness in him. My mum would come by and she'd just touch the back of his neck. Just those incredible moments of tenderness that lift you out of that sadness. So I, I cling to those things. And the other thing, Kerry, is words. I've looked for other people who've been into that darkness. I, 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 I gravitate to those writers. Um, Which doesn't necessarily... Uh, place you into a kind of depressed state, does it? I have been in a, in a mm. depressed state and I, and I have suffered enormously. But after, after reporting this stuff, I remember at one point after having reported these things, war and misery, for year after year after year, just absolutely heading into the abyss and, and reliving all that pain of childhood as well. But the words of others help. And there are writers out there that I turn to, and often they are, they're Irish or they're Russian or they're Polish or they're Chinese or Aboriginal writers that, that tell me I'm not alone and they've been there and, and they're a solace to me. What about your own children? Have you been able to help them escape that legacy of sadness? I don't know if I could answer that. I, I hope so. 
their lives materially are so much more comfortable than yeah. mine ever could have been. Um, and I'm glad of that. And I'm glad that they've had lives where they've travelled the world. And, but they also have a deep, deep sense of connection and their own responsibilities that come from belonging to, the, to a people and to a history. And I think all of the kids are um, incredibly committed in their own small ways to trying to make things better, even if it's just amongst their friends and, and, and they have a strong sense of social justice. Um, my daughter right now has just put aside everything to go and sit with my mum and dad while my dad struggles with poor health and is giving everything to them. And, and I'm really proud of that. And, but I don't, I think, I, I don't think they, they have not lived the sadness that I saw. And thankfully they haven't seen the things that I've seen as a reporter. And I wouldn't want them to. And their journey is going to be something else and hopefully a journey to a better place for them. So you talk about identity in the book and there's a, mm. the, there's a flow of all this, isn't there? Identity, mm. of course, is at the heart of yeah. all of what you're talking about. So when you talk about identity hate mm. in your book and about the potpourri of conflict that you've seen as a foreign correspondent, you're talking about the global amplification in so many cases of colonial chickens coming home to roost, aren't you? Mm. Mixed with um, the legacies of the histories of those countries yes. themselves and, and the populists and demagogues who exploit that history for their own ends. Yes, it, it's all of those things. And it's, you know, when you are sitting in the Middle East and you know that you are sitting in a place that has been invaded and occupied and borders redrawn and despots propped up all in the name of progress or moving you closer to democracy. Let's invade this country because then a hundred flowers will bloom and there'll be, you know, there'll be a, a, a flowering of democracy across the Middle East. Remember the invasion of Iraq? Yeah, um, just don't hold your breath. Just don't hold your breath, right. And, and you know, China and, and all of these places that live with that, with that history. And, and identity is a really fraught thing for me because it's a strange word. I mean, of course I have an identity. I belong to an Aboriginal people. I, I am Australian, whatever that means. And it means different things for me and maybe different things for other people. Um, it's a very contested and very contingent idea of what it even is to call yourself an Australian. Um, but, but I am all of those things. Um, I'm a father and husband and writer and journalist and friend and all those things are part of my identities. But when identity is reduced to a single thing and when it is weaponized and when it is allied to a, to a historical grievance and a deep wound, you get what the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche called an all-consuming historical fever. And wherever I've seen, the conflicts of the world that I've seen have, been, have emerged out of that all-consuming historical fever. Um, those people who are trapped in their history and too many people who want to exploit that cynically for their own ends. And there's an element of that with Xi Jinping. There is no doubt he emerges out of that hundred years of humiliation, but he uses it as a weapon as mm. well. It weaponizes an identity. Osama bin Laden weaponized that identity. ISIS weaponized that identity. Donald Trump weaponizes that identity. White supremacists weaponize that identity. Um, identity, Amartya Sen, the Indian economist and philosopher, once said that solitarist identities kill and they kill with abandon. Hindu versus Muslim, Shia versus Sunni, 
Muslim versus Christian, Hutu versus Tutsi, North Korean versus South Korean, how easily we can see our world set ablaze by these things. That horrible human being who went to Christchurch and shot people yeah. in prayer, Dylan Roof who shot people in prayer, the people who, who bombed the Bataclan Theatre, gunned down the people at Charlie Hebdo. Mm. We see where that identity can lead and I struggle with all of those things. Phrase that jumped out at me, born of a world where we no longer see ourselves in each other. Yeah, and, and you know, how often now do we see that conception of identity which is about an us and a them? There is, I am this, you are that. It is not what we are, but what we are not. And, and even m movements of great, potentially great liberation that emerge from a deep sense of injustice carry within it their own tyranny. The French Revolution that morphed into the terror. Um, the, the, you know, the, the, the Bolshevik Revolution that morphs into terror. The Communist Revolution in China that morphs into the, the great famine and suffering on a, on a just a biblical scale. So we can see how those things can happen. And even things that have present themselves as liberating movements can so easily become tyrannical. Albert Camus once said that every claim of justice carries with it an invitation for hate. Yeah. And, and I've seen that in so many parts of well, the world. Well, what we're all seeing now is, is this polarisation where in my lifetime, most of my lifetime, where even people who might have been seriously dogmatically opposed to each other's arguments on mm. whatever it was, from the petty to the, to the big they were still able to talk to each other. Mm. To a degree at least, they were still able to reach across the divide. Nixon, what you're Nixon seeing and now, Mao. Mm. There you go. What you are seeing now, I think, you're seeing the polarisation in the media, you're certainly seeing the polarisation in politics, you're seeing polarisation in community. Yeah. And, and you know... And we, we are not talking to each other in the way we were. No, and, and you know, I, I hear Scott Morrison now decrying the identity politics and, you know, to a degree I can say that I'm with him on that, but Let's not forget that the most powerful identity of all has been the identity of whiteness in the, you know, in the cargo of colonisation and empire, of debts still unpaid for the tragedies and the horrors of history. Identity is not just about identifying the other group, but it's looking at yourself as well. And that ability, Kerry, you're right, that ability to come together and to be able to have those conversations, have those disagreements, but find something else. I did a wonderful event last night with Paul Kelly and, um, and, and we were talking about poetry. Paul Kelly, the, the singer, not Paul Kelly the, um, from the Australian, but who I'm sure loves poetry as well. I'm sure does. But, um, but, but Paul Kelly recited a beautiful line from the, the Persian poet Rumi. And Rumi said, the armies of grief are on the march. I will not join them. But how often do we see today that is precisely where we go? Mm. We join, we, we pick our grievance and we join our army. Yeah. Or as John Howard said to me once, we're all, we're all uh, members of our tribe. Mm. Mm. I won't give you the background to that. As, as, as an Irishman though, Kerry, as an Irishman, when you go to Ireland, and you know there are places in Ireland where you can, you can touch the walls, and you know, the blood is still almost fresh on the walls from the you know, Cromwell invasion. Do you feel that is all, yours? All of that too? is true. All yeah. of that is true. Is that and your I do, I do identify yeah. myself more with my Irish background than any other, but I'm, 
but, but also with the Scottish, um, a little more restrained on the English. Uh, but I was rather excited briefly to think that I had Jewish blood in my veins and I wondered how many anti-Semites there were in the world who unknowingly carried Jewish blood. Mm. It's a madness. It's a madness. The whole thing is a madness. And, but yet white people... Uh, living in white societies, particularly privileged white societies and educated white societies who, who over generations have just been so ingrained in the satisfaction and the knowledge and the comfort of their whiteness that that is taken for granted and anything that is not white and, and is, I, is different. You know? I think, I and, think... and so, sorry, mate, when I hear even you talk about people of colour and so many, so many people who are not white referring to this term people of colour, I'm thinking... That's offensive too, mm, mm. because what it means is people who are not white, which just happens to be a colour. Mm. And, and it's really interesting, Kerry, just to bring this back to the China story. I think part of what we're seeing now with China emerging as a, let's, let's face it, it's an authoritarian regime. It has taken the aspects of market capitalism that best suits it, but absolutely rejects the Communist Party at least, absolutely rejects the political liberalism that is meant to accompany that. In fact, sees it as a weakness and resents it. Um, but I suspect that that emergence of China, which by the end of this decade will probably be the biggest economy in the world, and for the first time in 300 years, that will not be a Western liberal country. And that's a very different world to live in. And I suspect for the West, this is an existential moment to see the end of that project of modernity, if you like. And you hear it all the time. Western civilization needs to be defended. Western civilization is going to collapse. I always wonder about this, and I think that these great defenders of Western civilization think it is so weak that it will collapse if we have gender-neutral bathrooms. Um, it will collapse. It will collapse if we have a treaty with First Nations people, that these things are antithetical to liberalism. They're not. They are not. And I think what we're seeing now is still a hangover from the 1989 hubris at the fall of the Berlin Wall and that end of history idea, that liberal democracy with the, all the history it comes with is the ultimate destination of humanity. We are all on a journey to a universal liberalism. Now, China is not, and that's a very different world. And a lot of the parts of the world that I've reported on are not. And democracy is not essential for happiness or human flourishing. I've seen happiness and human flourishing in places that are not democracies, and I've seen great misery in democracies. I like that I live in a liberal democracy, but I think part of what we're seeing now is a real moment where the shibboleths of liberal democracy, the universalism of liberal democracy, are being challenged and in some respects are failing, allied with the rise of a power that is not white and avowed the authoritarian. That's an existential moment for our world. Now, with the few minutes we've got left, I'm going to come back, we're going to stay with China. Although I just have to throw this in, as we were talking about, about the whiteness, uh, when I went to America as a correspondent years ago and I had to fill out the form for my social security card, um, there were all these different categories of people. Mm, mm. Those of us who were coming in from outside were all aliens. That was the term, we were aliens. Um, and, uh, and my category uh, was white, not his brackets, not Hispanic. White, not Hispanic. White, not Hispanic. Even though the Irish were the blacks of Europe. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And, and, and Kerry, yeah. every time I fill out a form, 
in Australia, it could, to join a football, a, a sporting club, or to take out a loan, or to take a job, there's a box. Are you Aboriginal mm. or Torres Strait Islander? How, now, that box does not contain my grandmother, who's white. Um, it doesn't say Baradjuri, Gummeroy. Yeah. It says Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, which is a definition that's been put on us. It doesn't include my wife. Our son can tick it and his mother can't. Um, and I understand the bureaucratic measures, and, but there is something uneasy about that for though. me and I'm yeah. sure for you. Yeah. yeah. So Paul Keating calls uh, Xi Jinping the Sun King. Mm. And in his A long terms, time ago he, he started saying he did, it. He did. Uh, and he, have, he was referring not to the emperors, but to Louis XIV, who mm. ruled France for 72 years. Of course years. he would. <laughs> <laughs> last, time I was, last time I was with Paul, he, he, he went into a room and he came out and he said, look at this. He had this thing wrapped in, in newspaper. And I pulled the paper up and he said, do you know what that is? And I said, yeah, there's a coffee mug. Yes, but it's Napoleon's coffee mug from St. <laughs> Helena. <laughs> So, of course, Louis XIV was a powerful, absolute monarch. And since then, we've seen the progressions, the various progressions, including to the one where he can be virtually president for life. Mm. So how do you see that analogy? I think mo most definitely um, he does see himself differently to previous leaders. He does see himself as part of the Troika, which is Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, and now see, this is the third revolution. If Mao's was the communist revolution, if Deng's was the economic revolution, then this is the final revolution, which is to return China to the apex of global power. Um, he is megalomaniacal. Um, he is very shrewd. He is very smart. I don't, he is ruthless. Um, how dangerous he is, I think we still don't know, which is why we need to prepare for the worst potential eventuality. While still um, backing our diplomats. While still hoping, which, which we don't have at the moment. We don't have diplomacy. Um, we don't know, but he, but he is a departure, Kerry, and, you know, he has ruthlessly crushed dissent. He has cracked down on Hong Kong. He is locking up the Uyghurs. He is harm... They have this term, to harmonise the nation, to basically lock up anyone singing out of tune. You will harmonise the nation. Um, yet at the same time, He's continuing to grow the economy. 700 million people have been lifted out of poverty in China over the last two or three decades. It is on track to become the biggest economy in the world. Um, he's building a military to defend that. And that's, that's the reality of our world. We are dealing with a man who has already been called by The Economist magazine the most powerful person in the world. Which was a title that was uh, universally applied to the American president for mm. a century, mm. virtually. Mm. So any hope that the US and China can meet in the middle, that for all the bumping and the jostling, that sanity will prevail? Look, I, I think there is. I mean, there's always that, and you'd be familiar with this, but, you know, the, the Thucydides trap, you know, that idea that came from the Peloponnesian War with Athens and Sparta and um, that you have a rising power and a waning power, and when those two things converge, you have conflict. We saw that in 1914 with Germany and Britain. Um, we've seen that in other times in our history, and now we're potentially seeing this again. The failure of diplomacy means, or the absence of diplomacy, means that we don't have a political architecture to deal with the worst. 
if there was an accident, a miscalculation, um, if there was a collision of planes in the South China Sea, if a ship was downed, um, that could trigger something from which there is no return because we don't have that political architecture. You know, Joe Biden is there now and, you know, I think if He's I have a... He's surprising people. He is surprising people, but I think even with what he is trying to do in the US, which is try to break up that monopoly of power and wealth, redistribute some of that wealth, deal with that appalling inequality that has fueled the Trump populism, um, the racism that fueled the Trump populism, there is also an element still of liberal triumphalism. He still believes you don't bet against America and, you, and the future doesn't belong to autocrats. Well, the Taliban bet against America and America is leaving. North Korea bet against America, it's now got 60 nuclear weapons and, and counting. China bet against America, it's claimed the South China Sea. Putin's bet against America and annexed Crimea. Bashar al-Assad bet against America and he's still in power. Um, the idea of American exceptionalism, the idea that Ameri of American hegemony, the idea of liberal universalism, I think, is going to be the challenge of this age. How do we maintain those things that are dear to us and secure those things and make our democracies healthier, while also being able to live in a world where we know that big powers, and perhaps the biggest power, is not a liberal democracy. That's the challenge of leadership of our time. That's, we've seen these challenges before. We saw it with the rise of Hitler. We saw leaders such as Churchill, for all of his failings, being able to have a clarity to draw a line and say, we will stop this. FDR, we've seen, we saw Nixon go to China. Flawed figures, flawed characters all. But these, these moments that call for statesmanship and political vision, and that's what we're going to require if there is a rapprochement between the big powers or the potential could absolutely, without beating the drums of war, be catastrophic. And if all else fails, Stan, we've got Peter Dutton as Defence Minister. <laughs> Rest easily. So, thank you very much. Thank you, mate. for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.